Lingua Britannica is a podcast that uses ethnographic interviews to study language use in the extreme metal community. We are studying a music scene known for its love of themes and topics generally considered offensive, and it is likely that some episodes will touch on topics or opinions some listeners may find tasteless or ethically problematic. Ethnographic researchers aim to adopt the interviewee's point of view so that we can draw out and study the attitudes, beliefs, and practices that are important to them. We want to make it clear that in presenting these conversations here, we do not endorse any of their content. Our aim is to explore the thought processes behind language use in this long-running international and yet understudied scene. And welcome to this, our fourth episode of Lingua Britannica, hosted by myself, Jess Bernie-Smith, along with my co-host, Wes Robertson. Hey, how's it going? Uh, our episode today is going to be a little bit different to those we've previously released, uh, because rather than interviewing a metal musician about their lyrical choices, uh, today we're going to be discussing research on extreme metal scenes conducted by our guest, Dr. Rosemary Overall. Rosie is a lecturer in media and communications at the University of Otago in New Zealand, and her research falls within the fields of gender studies, psychoanalysis, and Asian studies. And importantly, in 2014, she released a book entitled Effective Intensities in Extreme Metal Music Scenes, uh, Cases from Australia and Japan. And this was based on research conducted as part of the completion of her PhD thesis at the University of Melbourne. Uh, and this is the work that we're going to be chatting with her about today. Uh, so Rosemary, uh, Rosie, firstly, thank you for being with us today. And we're really stoked to have the opportunity to chat to you about this research, uh, given it's certainly been very influential on our own research in the extreme metal scenes in Asia and Australia. Uh, so would you mind firstly, just uh, kind of giving us a brief overview of uh, your research on Grindcore? Oh, thanks for having me, um, Jess and Wes. It's really great to meet fellow metalhead academics. Um, so I um, kind of came to Grindcore as a fan and metal as a fan first and then kind of turned that into a research project, which I think a lot of metal academics do. Um, so I, I did, I was involved in the scene when I was an undergrad at uni, um, the gr local Grindcore scene in Melbourne, which was centred around pubs like the Art House and the Tote and um, the Bendigo Hotel. Um, you guys would probably know better if they're still um, going. I know the art house isn't. 100%. But... Um, Bendigo is still really popular for metal. <laughs> yeah, I sort of um, miss going to gigs. Where I live in New Zealand, there's not many um, extreme metal bands, at least touring in this area. But um, so I was going to gigs and I did a, a subject called Rock to Rave at Melbourne Uni, which was like a cultural studies of music. And I did a ethnography of a place called the Pink Palace, which was a DIY warehouse, um, squat turned warehouse living space, which hosted gigs more on the crusty side, but also lots of grindcore. And so I did that and uh, my um, teacher, Alison Huber, recommended I do that for my honours project. So I did an ethnography of the Pink Palace people and it had closed down. So I looked at gentrification and how that affected music. 
And then um, I went on to do a PhD and wanted to keep writing about grindcore particularly, um, but was interested in this particular thing that I'd noticed because grindcore is a really small scene, like a subset within broader extreme metal in Australia. But there had been this dynamic between Japan and Australia, particularly Melbourne and Osaka, where there was a few bands sort of coming back and forth and people going over and again, these were all DIY things. And I thought, well, this is an interesting um, thing to look at. A kind of minor transnationalism was one of my first in, sort of conceptual frameworks. And um, so that's how I came to sort of look at Japan as the comparative example and the two sort of minor cities, not Sydney, not Tokyo, but Melbourne and Osaka. But um, I did take bite off a bit more than I could chew in a way because I didn't speak Japanese. So I did intensive classes, first year PhD um, at, you know, like a cramming school. I think it's Japanese, it's called, right? Um, and sat in on some undergrad with the first years um, and then did moved over there to do the ethnographic field work where I picked up a bit more Japanese, but it's still not very um, good. Um, so yeah, I came to it as a fan, but also um, I can go into more detail about my research question, which was around gender and the kind of representational stuff. So I was a woman heavy, I'm still am a strong feminist, um, uh, involved in lots of um, direct action stuff at that time, like the Pink Palace came out of the MUA strikes, which were a particular blockade around um, stopping uh, Patrick Stevedoring and scab labour. So I was involved in activist politics as well, and feminism was a big part of that. And but we, I had this contradiction, you know, I was jamming along to these songs, it loved the mosh pit and all that sort of stuff and headbanging, dancing, enjoying myself, listening to these songs, which were all sort of, you know, raped with a chainsaw, was slowly raped with a chainsaw, was one by Fuck I'm Dead. And one of the bands that I toured with early on, just as a fan, um, was Vaginal Carnage. Um, and they were all great guys, you know, um, good allies, comrades, but were singing these or at least use these signifiers of violent brutalness against women. Um, and I was trying to tease out that contradiction between the written or representational and the spoken and the affective. So how we actually experience culture like music that sort of pushes beyond what might be written. But I can there's heavy contradictions and problems with this as well, which I don't think I resolved in the thesis or the book, but. I'm still trying to tease out now more moving using psychoanalysis, but um, certainly originally it was using affect theory and Masumi and Deleuze and Guattari's work. Did you initially find any, you know, just from the very, very beginning um, pushback on people asking why would you ever study grindcore or why would you study uh, extreme metal? Was it something that you found uh, I guess either in or outside of act academia, people thought it was just not worth attention. Absolutely. I mean, again, you, both of you have probably experienced this in your own academic careers. Um, I had fantastic supervisors and good um, 
peers in my department, but certainly um, I had someone say, oh, why, uh, that's all that cultural studies bullshit, an academic, senior academic say that within my um, orbit once. And I certainly got knocked back for things like fieldwork grants, which I mean, you know, you can go conspiracy theory, but they usually went to people um, doing Shakespeare and sort of visiting the British Library, things like that, because um, we were sort of within that model within the English program. So it was cultural studies with English. Um, but of course, they might have knocked me back because my work wasn't good enough too. But um, and even, of course, on an everyday level, um, the people I interviewed, the musicians and fans were all like, I can't believe you get, you're doing a PhD on this. And in fact, their impulse was often that I was doing a psychology degree, that I wanted to kind of categorise them as sick or aberrant individuals. Um, so a kind of cultural studies or sociology perspective was completely outside their idea of a lot of them would say, oh, so it's like anthropology, but for um, white people or something like that. <laughs> that was a few people sort of framed my work. Or you, um, so, and then my own family and extended family couldn't believe it either. I mean, oh, she's studying what? So that sort of, I guess, is typical. Um, but um, I guess that's the usual pushback towards humanities and particularly cultural studies type of degrees, which kind of look at our culture with a critical lens. You know, it sort of doesn't fit in the boxes of what academic work might look like. Yeah. It actually kind of links to uh, uh, the second question we had prepared, which was how did you find it uh, trying to ingratiate yourself in these scenes? You mentioned that you already had some, you know, uh, connections within the the Melbourne or Australia scene, but was there any difference between kind of the difficulties of of entering these as not just a fan but a, a researcher? Oh, totally. I felt like um, coming through the scene, like say from being going to all ages gigs, like a young person growing up, and then switching and say at twenty four or whatever, starting my PhD and saying to people I knew very well, including my partner at the time. Um, okay, well, now um, I'm going to do a qualitative interview, right? Um, was very difficult and seemed kind of artificial. And I had a few people say to me in Melbourne, oh, you're just looking at us like a microscope because participant observation, right? I'm at a gig. But mostly people were quite friendly in the Melbourne scene, if, if not a little perplexed, as I say, with that I had a, a project going on it. But in general, people were keen to, you know, they were enthusiastic to talk about it. But um, that was one of the things I found difficult doing the research. And I tried to use, diff tried different types of methodologies to try and break out of that qualitative interview or the participant observation where you quickly write the notes up when you get home by using the mini, at that time, I was using mini discs. This is how mm -hmm. long it was mini disc recorders um, to give to the participants to um, kind of do self-recordings but not at least in popular music studies people had done that before but for, for much slower type of genres say classical music or folk music festivals so people would be perhaps walking around a, a folk festival um, doing a kind of self-diary 
auto ethnography that would then be given to the ethnographer. But this, I was trying to get the fastness of the gig um, and trying to close some of that reflective space of language, um, which is really obviously extremely difficult to do. Um, and also, I was trying to also account for the fact that of um, intoxication at the gigs too, like my enjoyment and participation was also like being often really drunk. So coming home and just taking notes wasn't really an option. So I was trying to do it on the spot and remember it through doing grabs with my own uh, mini disc or I think later I had the iPod with a plug that you could record um, in the toilets at gigs and things like that. Um, but of course, also, I had the extra level in Japan of um, not knowing the language or the scene very well. So having what I tried, to, yeah, I got the guys to record in Japanese and used an interpreter to translate it, but he was in the scene as well. Um, so it wasn't, he had some kind of ability to translate some of the more um, slangy terms. But yeah, it was... Um, and, and, and coming in in Japan, I was always the, well, I was either the researcher or Duncan's wife because um, I was married at the time to a guy in a band. Um, but that is also part of, I was sort of seen like that in Melbourne but had my own identity before meeting my former husband. So in Japan, but of course that also works within Japanese forms of patriarchy too and entering the space having to have a kind of um, apparatus or prop, a, an entry point. Um, and particularly my brother-in-law at the time, Duncan's brother, um, was a, a sort of revered drummer who'd moved to Japan and lived there and played. And that was kind of my parlay into the scene. So in a number of ways then, would you say the Japanese scene was a bit more, uh, I guess, insular or kind of protective of, of who was allowed to come in? And Well, it's, I, I mean, my initial thought would be yes, but of course, uh, when it's another culture and another language, it might always seem like that to the outsider. Mm. Plus, so Melbourne's scene was like that, a bit like Sarah Thornton's work on club cultures. I know it's an old text, but I do think it's still important because there's a normalising, everybody in the growing course scene in Melbourne would say, we're really welcoming, anyone's allowed. And I think I brought up in interviews, you know, this question around feminism and gender. And people, the men would often go, oh, I can't believe that. Really? You experienced that? I'm so sorry. We want to make it more inclusive. But they were shocked that it could be experienced in another way. And I mean, there's casual modes of sort of policing social and cultural capital as well, you know, T-shirts, who fits in, what you're wearing, who's up the front, all that, who you know, all those sorts of um, things work within the Melbourne scene as well. But um, sort of having, what would I say, um, paid my dues um, by coming up through it, um, I had more clout that makes it seem less insular but of course looking back um working as a researcher you you look for how those modes of policing or boundary um maintenance work i guess mm. um for sure 
And I mean, when I say drinking, there was like two scenes too, because there were people who were totally straight edge who were accepted in the scene as well and didn't get drunk, but they kind of make up for that through, say, their head banging or their um, grind point, point dexter expertise, you know. Um, there are other ways of kind of accruing capital apart from drinking, but certainly drinking wasn't, and actually hard drugs when I first started were a major part of the scene, um, heroin and things, but um, I do, I, I think that's shifted. I, I don't know, you'd know better than me, but uh, weed was certainly a major part of it as well, which mm. I kind of left out of the, yeah, I didn't focus on that in the thesis, but that was certainly a big cultural thing, you know, going off and smoking in someone's car was a, a typical sort of bonding exercise. <laughs> but of course, as was buying around and those typical mm. Aussie bloke um, behaviours. And in Japan, it was a little bit more formalised. I think I write about um, after Uchiage's, right, mm -hmm. which you're probably familiar with, um, these sort of more formalised after parties with quite strict modes of who's buying the drinks and footing the bill. It was often the June, the Kohai who were um, sort of, you know, spending hundreds of dollars after these events, but also having to pay homage to the senior guys in the um, scene as well. Um, I kind of bumbled in as I think also as a white, clearly marked as white, you know, mm. I'm not going to pass as Japanese. <laughs> um, and my bad language bad language and being a woman I had some leniency of kind of bumbling in as the foreigner of not knowing the rules and sometimes you could get some really interesting kind of participant observation material through that kind of position as well um, mm. but of course that does wear thin and you kind of have to willfully ignore grumpy faces or energies to sort of continue that as well Mm. So, I mean, you started already kind of identifying some of the kind of major differences between like, you know, the scenes in Australia and um, Japan. I was just wondering if you could say more about like specifically, uh, I suppose, like how brutality itself seems to be constructed in across those two spaces. Yeah, I mean, I, I found this word kept coming up and mm. it's funny that now I'm kind of following psychoanalysis and think you could think about repetition, but um so brutal, of course, or not of course, but <laughs> it's a term in metal that circulates, right? Like, um, I don't know, there would be equivalent terms in other genres of hip hop or, or what, um, uh, like lit or something. I don't know. I don't know the pop, popular pop music slang, but of course I knew brutal as a descriptor in terms of extreme metal. And as a sub-genre, you know, you have brutal death metal. Mm -hmm. But also um, people would end a gig in Melbourne regularly. You'd just say brutal and do the horns. And, you know, um, that was a brutal show. It was um, There'd be other ones still, like you demolished the set or other sort of metaphors of um, sort of violence and aggression. But brutal kept coming up. And then when I went to Japan, see, this didn't sort of come up until it's kind of iterative, right? Um, I certainly didn't predict that this term would travel, so to speak. But then I was at the shows in Japan and they would use the loan word, burutaru, like katakanaized um, version. 
and um, with the same, you know, maybe this is some universal thing, the same horns. And I thought, well, what does it mean? Because I talked to people in Melbourne about what brutal meant to them. And, you know, it was this, again, we can't find the words. We can't describe it. It just means really good. It means a great experience. I actually found there was more in, really interesting in Japan where they actually went to um, experiences of extreme pleasure. So in Japanese, this was the translation, but that it was like an orgasmic experience for these men. Brutal, when you use that term, brutaru, it was kind of saying this experience was like, um, you know, extreme um, pleasure. Um, whereas in Australia, perhaps because it is an English word, um, there was less kind of, I think they were pointing towards that, some kind of extreme affective experience, but they didn't literally link it to sex, whereas in Japan there was, at least from the translation, I'd have to go back over my notes and find the what the original Japanese word was used, but... Um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because it, it, it also, it's not just within Japan. Obviously, that word brutal has circulated throughout um, metal in Latin America, across Asia, and here in New Zealand too, obviously. Um, well, it's very similar to Australia, but works as um, kind of, you know, a good um, signifier um, of within metal. But again, of course, in English has the same usage with true crime and things like that to mean a kind of literal the exact opposite of something that's the worst thing that could happen and it's interesting because it's a masculinized form I think but of course it was a way women in both scenes could kind of claim some kind of capital too by using that word and doing the um, horns so Speaking of kind of both of these scenes, um, I noted that in your book, you talk about how there's, you know, a senses of inclusion and exclusion in the scenes, whereas the Japanese scene, for instance, is a bit on the hierarchical side, but in Australia, and this is something that we've noted in interviewing Australian bands, uh, taking things too seriously is often seen as a source of critique. Um, I'm very much recognizing that this question is, is based on kind of stereotypes of cultures, but given that metal is often seen as kind of a countercultural art form or something that pushes back against mainstream culture, uh, which of course is stereotyped too, uh, it is interesting to me this sort of split seems kind of stereotypical uh, of the two cultures in a way. Uh, do you have any ideas why this contradiction might exist or based on your experiences is, is perhaps this not actually the contradiction that it, it may seem to be at face value? Well, I reckon most culture sits within some form of contradiction, like just language, but also most cultural formations, the university is a good example, have some kind of contradiction at, at their heart. But it was interesting to me how, um, and I'm interested that you both said the musicians you've interviewed in the Australian ones continue this kind of idea, dominant idea that we don't take things too seriously. It's about taking the piss. Don't get too close to the object in a way. Like um, that's what I kept feeling that to be a true metalhead, you couldn't sort of lose your cool and enjoy it too much in Australia. Um, it had to sort of loop back through other types of male um, 
pursuits of or fandoms, cricket or something, where you could enjoy the sport but you knew the stats. Again, it is a stereotype, um, but certainly if you if you pushed it too far, you were sort of seen as um, missing the point or not getting it. Um, I mean, whereas in Japan. Um, it was considered a serious hobby. I'm just, there's a helicopter, so I'll just close it. It was seen as a serious hobby. This, more than Shumi, it was this ikigai, right? So they'd often, you know, this was my calling. So they took, not only took it seriously, but it almost sort of became an essential part of their sense of self, like, um, getting close to the object was kind of almost as in the playing the music or attending a gig was like a, a self-sustaining thing, which I think it was for a lot of the Australians as well, but perhaps it was uncool to say it um, because it wasn't commonly taken within that scene. Like, oh, what there is a, do a documentary sort of relatively recently made about Australian metal. It really showed this. It had guys from Blood Duster, but also some of the older guys from sort of 70s bands. Oh, I'm blanking on the name, but there's still this kind of, and also sort of using, uh, you know, foul language or swear words to sort of keep effacing that distance too, you know. Mm. So we actually, uh, that's kind of one thing. I mean, obviously the, the bands that we've seen take their music uh, seriously and their art form quite seriously, but there is definitely a, um, you know, the, for instance, some of them discussed uh, European bands that are just all about metal and kind of distancing themselves. But we actually found the opposite, that swearing uh, is something that a lot of the bands don't like. Uh, some of the, I think one of the ones that really stuck out for, for me at least was an artist that we talked to that stated that swearing is for like in between songs or like mm -hmm. at the show. But banter, swearing on yes, yeah. yeah, it's for the banter. But swearing on stage is like uh, it, it, there's no shock value to it because this is Australia, <laughs> and so and they wanted to avoid it. That's such a good point. I love that it's for in between that mm. that idea that it's marking a liminal space, whereas the proper song or, mm. or riff, and and such a good point too that it's. It's not transgressive because Australia, um, Australian culture is laced with profanity, but perhaps it, particularly within, um, even if you broadened out to rock, rock music, of course, is similar. Um, but again, uh, perhaps there was limitations with language um, for me in Japan of perhaps missing um, profanity or obscenity in the um, like the qualitative material, um, but often they'd import uh, English words to swear um, within like the copy of the flyers and things, but it, was, mm -hmm. it wasn't necessarily sung. Um, Did you look at the lyrics very much? Not, not with the Japanese bands um i did note that i looked at the um the samurai metal band that who sort of was singing mm. soy sauce empires and things like this um but most of them were like other they were sort of not really grindcore they were more like a death metal so they had lyrics but the other bands mostly had growled or sort of just 
nonsense vocals in Japan. Though one, the the guy who did the interpreting, Hide, he was lead singer in Infernal Revulsion and they did sing lyrics um, and he'd do them both in English and Japanese because he was quite proud of having both languages. And I think he'd translated another band called Ryokuchi's lyrics. They were mostly about um, pastoral, a bit like, it was like black metal, but a Japanese sort of version. So, you know, rather than the, the fjords and mountains, they were singing about, um, well, they were singing about mountains, but it was Japanese landscapes. Mm -hmm. I think they were quite short lived um but they did tour australia so but they were definitely they were more sludgy rather than grind in australia the bands i looked at didn't have any lyrics um none of them they were all noise the vocalists were making noises but but of course they had um you know detailed song titles which were often rather well they were either obscene um in a sexual way or a violent way, um, with with some exceptions, um, but then it was like my ex's band Shagnum. They didn't have swear words, but they were still masculine. They were singing about cars. Well, I mean, okay, you could argue cars are not masculine, but the way they were thinking about them was within a kind of you know macho car culture of. Um, I don't know, Holden's and Ford's or whatever. Um, were they a grindcore about cars? Yeah. Um, That's so, subject matter I haven't heard of before. Yeah, uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's, so the, the band was called Shagnum. They weren't like, they weren't a hugely influential band and we're only a, a, a sort of sometime band, but, oh, I don't know even what the EP is, but, I think they've only got one release. It's probably on, well, it's probably kicking around on some forum somewhere, but they had uh, songs about, one was called The Bronze or something, I, but it was in, it was about cars, but you wouldn't know that, I guess, but it was about mm. a particular tone of Tirana car, you know, a bronze um, panel beating job. Um, but they had various vocalists. So that was a song from when they had a vocalist who was a car enthusiast. Then they had um, a different vocalist um, who I interviewed for my thesis, who he actually was quite articulate um, about, he was one of the few who, who did sort of get close to it and said, you know, I really lose myself on stage and I kind of throw everything in into it. I don't know what I think about but people interpreted it as violence because he was quite agonised, you know, he'd wrap the um, cord round his neck and writhe and um, really throw his whole body into the performance. Um, but, mm. um, and he actually was um, one of the crew who had lived in Japan too and spoke quite good Japanese. Um, mm. um, um, he, I think he'd also sung in a Japanese band, but a more a guest vocalist, yeah. Oh, great. That's cool. Um, 
so yeah, regarding the performance aspect, um, you know, we're talking before about like to the degree to which, uh, you know, metal musicians in Australia and Japan kind of uh, take themselves seriously or, you know, avoid taking themselves too seriously. I was wondering like, you know, to what extent that kind of comes through in the actual performance. Like for instance, one of the things we've chatted um, about with uh, other musicians from Australia is that, uh, you know, humor is so important when performing for an Australian crowd, whereas um, that doesn't seem to be as much the case uh, elsewhere overseas. Uh, yeah, is that something that you kind of saw coming up in your own data? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think humour was a key linchpin within the live, well, not even just, also the recorded music was in jokes, you know, the Melbourne Grind Syndicate was an in joke, um, references to um, colourful crime characters like um, Kay Nisbet, the shotgun makeover was one of the songs by Fuck I'm Dead. Um, so this is kind of the recorded stuff. But then obviously, uh, but on stage, it was a huge thing. Like people would go to see um, Blood Duster or Fuck I'm Dead partly to hear the banter and the humour um, of the live show. Oh, what's Tony going to do? What's Jay going to do? Um, who are they going to sledge, you know, um, pay out or take the piss out of? Um, you know, the other bands, but also um, in jokes about, um, you know, people's uh, hobbies or, uh, jobs or things like this, um, even people who weren't in bands, like so stalwart fans. Um, one guy I interviewed who's now actually in a number of bands but was a younger guy in the crowd at the time was a keen fan, but, you know, he was kind of um, brought into the banter, paid out, you know, oh, you're... Um, backpack fan because there'd be hardcore guys who'd come in in their big army shorts and they'd wear a backpack they wouldn't drink but they'd be right at the front and want to buy all the merch but um sort of sledging him was also making him part of the crowd um and he quite liked that and he's sort of come up as a um significant player in the scene now but yeah humor was absolutely vital um even things like um, well, I mean, but, but it also became a bit of an escape shoot. So everything mm. was, if you criticised it, it was, oh, you didn't get the joke. So right. um, Blood Duster's album, Cunt, with the um, woman with the big boobs on the front, and I think it had, you know, a sense of, but, and then they were, had, they were one of the early uptakers of website design and stuff. They had a merch shop online quite early on. And all the merch was a topless woman holding an LP or something with her, her boobs out. Or, and, you know, to sort of push back on that, they'd say, oh, you know, it's just a joke. I'm really great to women. I'm a lover, not a fighter, one of them said to me. Um, in, in, in a quite a, um, a sincere way. Mm. But also they had, you know, you knew them in real life. They had... Um, good relation or seemingly good relationships they weren't um thugs or anything um and even probably weren't pornography consumers but they kind of like that idea of yeah just pushing that boundary and I think they had jump t-shirts that said hippie kill squad right um again you'd go wow you know that's really aggressive and Oh, well, that's uh, because we, we sort of have a banter with the tofu punks, so punks mm. 
crusties who were more like vegans, animal rights and activists and blood dusters would mix with all those people, but they kind of had a, you know, an ongoing sort of in-group in fighting. Um, but of course the crusties didn't fight back with blood <laughs> the kill squad, right? They ignored it. Or there were various um, boycotts sometimes around gender, like vaginal carnage were um, Pink Palace stopped them playing there at one at, for the final point of that warehouse, even though one of the drummer lived there, his own band wasn't allowed to play there because the group had decided that, you know, it was a collectively run space. But I think gender was laughed off a lot more than something like racism or Nazi stuff. That would be completely unacceptable. That mm. wasn't a joke. In the Japanese scene, was it similar? Was there very little humor in your sense? I, I remember in your book, you mentioned, for instance, one person uh, decided that they wanted to focus on being a dad and that kind of got them thrown out of the scene. Uh, were like, have it was having relationships or even just joking about things kind of un, a bit more unpalatable in that context? Yeah, I think, I mean, but again, my lack of um, nuance with the language would have limited me for understanding the kind of, if um, jokes had operated mm. at anything more than quite an obvious level. So sure, I recorded some quite, I'd record banter and video. At that point, I think I had a digital camera. So um, one band, oh, God, I can't remember, might've been Warhead or one of the older sort of stalwart um again, kind of crusty grind bands. Um, they were known for their banter, but it would be more about public events. So if there was a scandal in politics or something, they'd make a, 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 a sort of, you know, a broad remark about it. Uh, you know, something blue, maybe um, using some, like criticising the government or something, but it wouldn't be taking the piss out of each other. Mm. Um, and as far as relationships went, yeah, they were mostly single men um, or, you know, uh, back bachelors, I suppose you'd say, um, whereas in Melbourne it was quite heteronormative hmm. um, and you could have a girlfriend or wife and still be in the scene, whereas in Japan it did seem like that would kind of curtail your participation um, in the scene but the main factor which curtailed people was if they moved up from working class to lower middle class or middle class professions salary salary man professions which demand really demanded too much of their time to be involved in the scene so that friend of mine Hide I'm pretty sure Infernal Revulsion doesn't play anymore as he's got, you know, this job interpreting for the rugby union um, squad. Was it all time-based or was there also a bit of the scene itself rejecting people that kind of moved, I suppose, up, if you will? Um, I'm, I'd, I've really, time would be a factor, but then you'd see salary men coming in or at least men in, I mean, they could have been, as I say, like lower middle class mm. administrative workers, but men in suits coming in and sort of really getting off in the mosh and joining in and all that, those young, younger guys. Mm. Um, so I guess there was some weekend warrior um, part of the scene, but 
to dedicate yourself to being in the band, the amount of rehearsal times on that level was much more than in Australia where it was kind of like, oh, shit, we've got a gig coming up. We better do some practice. Um, whereas in Japan it was like, okay, every every Wednesday and Friday we, we have a, a room booked to rehearse. Um, so... Uh, there was also a bit more value around like expertise on your instruments. So grindcore, of course, moves away from that in so many other ways, valuing low expertise like that woman at the conference I was at on Friday saying, well, is this a good grindcore band? Well, that kind of is inverted, but um, some of the Japanese bands would rehearse and rehearse an inversion, but also perhaps also have the performance of transgression too, like, um, there was more, there was nudity in both scenes, but I saw more of it in the Japanese scene than the Australian one, like guys completely taking off their clothes and performing, or um, there was blood in both scenes too, but I saw more of that kind of performed violence in the Japanese scene. But it was, to me, it seemed performed, but of course then, again, I'm always, it was very difficult to, yeah, collapse into mm. understanding the scene fully being an outsider. Mm. Was this musicians, sorry, being nude or fans? Uh, this was musicians. I never saw fans taking off their clothes in either oh. scene. Blood Duster would make a big spectacle of it, like, oh, here we go. Um, he's got his kid off or they'd all play nude, drenched in, uh, you know, theatrical blood. And you'd sort of, it was more an event, whereas like I went to one band in, I, it wasn't one of the bands I interviewed in Japan, but you'd have this huge rotation because there were lives all the time. And it was a long set that sort of went into a jam almost. And the guy, the vocalist sort of increasingly took the clothes off and kept getting more and more into the song and, um, yeah, I, I don't think I even ended up writing about that in the thesis, but that was definitely in the notes. Yeah, so we were talking before about um, the you know, differences in terms of how musicians in the Japanese context and the Melbourne context uh, kind of interact with the crowd. I was wondering if you noticed any kind of differences between the performance of the self uh, on stage versus, you know, um, if there's any kind of separation, I suppose, between that uh, performance of the self on stage versus uh, performance of self um, off stage if, you know, musicians do see a kind of distinction between their sage persona and their more personal identity, if you like. Definitely. Um, I was thinking, um, first up, I just remembered the name of the band where the chap took all his clothes off. Um, it uh -huh. was Reality reality Crisis. And that just came up on my feed. Um, they're still doing um, EPs, so they must still be a band that, put stuff out in Japan so but um okay yeah that's a good question so even outside so even in the live house or the gig space in Melbourne um people I guess have different personas on and off stage um so you see that quite um perhaps self-conscious performance in the Melbourne scene of say fuck I'm dead or dead or um blood duster mm. time um getting 
in the butcher's uniforms with the blood everywhere, but then off stage, like the costume would be taken off and they'd be wearing their grand corps uniform of, you know, a band shirt and jeans um, and just at the bar chatting with their mates like any other kind of punter. That's the, another thing because it's a small scene, as you probably know, most of the bands are punters and fans as well as mm. um, but then actually outside the scenic space, there's um, quite obviously quite um, profound differences, which I discussed uh, a little more with the Japanese people because they often felt that they, their life, that they lived for the music, you know, like no music, no life mm. is a slogan you see in um, Japan. I think Tower Records even had that, but that, that idea that they live, that they work perhaps a crummy job in the week and then are really keen on looking to, towards the weekend or the evenings to party or to be in the scene. So um, I think I mentioned before, many of the male, male scene members were working class and worked things like stevedoring, at, like, at, like at the docks mm. or frita type jobs in the sort of Japanese parlance um, such as working at a, a convenience store but one woman was one of the few women I influenced was uh, interviewed was quite interesting she um, in fact loved metal so much she migrated to Sao Paulo in Brazil obviously there's a big contingent of uh, Japanese-speaking um, migrants who live there. But, the, of course, the metal scene in Brazil is huge mm. too. So, but she, uh, uh, and she was just a fan, not a player, but she um, would make these, uh, what is it, plastic food. You know, in Japan you see when you go to any restaurant, there's a plastic model mm -hmm. of the food served inside. Mm. And she, uh, she had a very fine... Um, I think, I mean, it wasn't production. It was a sort of cottage industry. Um, maybe it was particularly special plastic food making, but it was a small outfit she worked for. Um, but she actually did quite enjoy that fine, finer work um, and found that, um, but it was, it was a means to save up the money for this ultimate move to Brazil. Mm -hmm. But, um, um, and of course, I suppose most of the people, from what I could gather, when that when I discussed their everyday lives, were um, compliant with other um, social norms in their everyday lives. Especially in Japan, they were um, good workers, though in um, menial jobs. Or as one of the participants said, "I'm working poor," but he said it waku poa. So he'd done the importation of the word from English. So I thought, wow, I wonder, you know, it's an unusual word to import, but it must have been in the media discourse at the time. Um, and he was actually worked at, his job was within the scene. He was a, a sort of, not even a barkeep. He was the guy who sat on the door and took the, mm -hmm. in, that, in the Japanese scene, he would have had a small salary for, whereas in Australia, as you probably know, a friend or somebody will sit on the door and um, not take a wage. Um, so I think they felt there was actually a split in Japan, at least between their performance of themselves in their everyday life outside the scene 
say, as the salary man, not as the salary man, maybe the highest they might have been were admin or office people in a, in a company, but say as a worker, and then the um, band was quite outside that. They weren't in bands with people they worked with, for example. That was a whole other group of friends and um, or colleagues. Um, in Australia, it's a bit different. Um, I guess it depended on the person's job, but many did live the, a whole life. As I said, there were venues like Pink Palace, which were like houses and venues. Mm -hmm. um, but there was also um, perhaps more ability to be able to get something like the Dole in Australia, where one could have some income and spend the day um, jamming or doing music related stuff. Um, also, they, uh, if they did work, sometimes it was in music industry, quite a few of them worked for shock records, not as A&R or marketing or anything, they worked in the Norman packing section, but could play mm -hmm. through shock, you could play some metal. They said they got into fights with the older bloke who wanted to play Triple M or whatever. <laughs> but um, they, would, they could play their music and show up to work, say, dressed in the jeans and a, a mm. big band T-shirt. But then other people who worked in, um, say, who were teachers wouldn't wear the band T-shirt if it was a particularly gory T-shirt to work, but would be, uh, you know, sometimes their mates from work, colleagues would come to gigs um, there was a bit more of a crossover between their work life and their scene life, um, even with their parents sometimes dropping in. I um, remember seeing that too. Like their parents were sort of keen to see what the music was like. And mm. In the Japanese context, did some of these workers, uh, did they give the sense that they had to kind of hide their fandom in metalness like I at their job or with their, with their friends who weren't in the scene? I reckon, I think that was implied, like they weren't resentful of it at all. I think they just took that as most people they worked with would have some hobby, whether it's collecting hours, what you were saying, or dark crystal stuff. But, you know, of course, in Japan, the serious hobbyist will go perhaps more than just a poster. Mm. <laughs> that assumption that they all probably have something that is outside the work. And that your work friends, your daughter, is that the word? Your colleagues mm -hmm. are different from your friends or tomodachi. Um, but I, none of them sort of complained of feeling particularly like it was just taken for granted that you wouldn't be able to, that you had a certain uniform or look that you would have to present and perform at work and enough, um, which wouldn't fit definitely wouldn't fit the look that they would wear at a, a nightclub. But, say, a lot of them had long hair, the men. Mm. They were the ones working in low admin. The ones who were doing admin tasks looked like straights, but the long-haired chaps were the ones doing either, like I said, stevedoring sort of labour or frita-type jobs. Mm. Yeah. Right. Of course, in Australia you might... There is a bit more uh, tattoos and things, um, a bit more acceptable, strange, strangely, in um, as 
I'll, of course, have to use tattoos of big in Japan, but of course, signify something quite different. Mm. Did mm. you find the scene to have the Japanese scene to kind of have an absence of tattoos compared to the Australian scene, or at least hidden no. tattoos? I think they're hidden, right? They'd be on their upper um, uh, arm or mm -hmm. leg. But these are all things which, again, yeah, if you were in a, a job, you would be able to cover. Mm -hmm. Where in Australia, um, tattoos were a major part of showing your connection to the scene and, um, yeah, huge element. Um, and often Australians, uh, I knew a few times they when they went on Japan on tour, they would be keen to get a tattoo to commemorate the Japanese tour. Because, mm -hmm. um, of course, Japan's famous. Not They weren't getting the traditional te technique, but maybe a Japanese-style design or something. Mm -hmm. But um, I was also thinking about another thing was... I think I put it in the book. I took Keith Khan Harris's idea of transgressive mundanity, where the um, the scene, the coolness and fun of the hobby of the scene, when it become when it seeps too much into your job, so you turn it into your job, like you open a, a venue, or you decide to do a distro or something. They were they were interesting people, so they were often like. The performance for them would be on stage and and the sort of admin work around working metal was um, kind of a site which was they may as well have been just working in an office job it often amounted to. They felt sort of sick of doing things like guillotining things to fit, uh, to paste up an LP cover because it was all sort of DIY stuff. Mm. And one guy I interviewed owned a little standing bar in Amemura in um, Osaka. So yeah. There's a lot of uh, little small metal bars in that area. Yeah, he was, he, that was, he had a metal bar. So he, um, we used to go there a lot, you know, knew him quite well. Um, and he'd play brutal truth and all these really deep cuts though he even had north korean um cassettes he'd done swaps for yeah it was kind of like okay yeah amazing and he had a small distro as well and um it was um but he when i spoke to him he loved he loved that he could do this like he could sit there and listen to his music all day have a drink talk to other people who like that music or not, you know, sometimes straight, straight people would come in and, but they often still to give it a go, buy a drink, whatever. Um, but I think he also found it tiring that then he, he almost had to turn it into something to make money out of um, rather than just for fun. It was his primary, um, you know, business. So and it ended up having to close down and he, last I heard, is a uh, works at a supermarket on the floor as a he's a manager of a you know a, a supermarket um, mm. still loves the music and everything but had to give up the the little bar but in that case it, it became a bit of a transgressive mundanity like he was playing this work but it become um, this crazy music but it become kind of work for him and um, yeah but so there are a few instances of that. Um, kind of 
thing as well. But I also think it was a bit, um, yeah, there's more of a separation in the Japanese scene between on stage and and out and off stage, then outside the scene. Mm. Mm-hmm. I was wondering as well, like kind of on top of that, like to what extent did um, you know you sense like musicians in both scenes identifying with like their lyrics and their stage performance? Um, I only ask because something that like you know we've um, discussed with other musicians in the scene in Australia is you know whether or not uh their music and uh, you know their stage persona is really reflection of like who they are as individuals and something that they've said is that you know particularly when we're talking about like really violent lyrics and stuff like that that they're like well that's part of like the performance and it's part of like you know the music and the entertainment value that I'm trying to create but it's not really a reflection of like my own desire to you know commit violent acts or anything like that it's you know just part of the kind of play involved in creating that kind of brutal metal experience is that something that you saw definitely had the same um that was what was verbalised in or articulated in the interviews, and definitely through that word you use, play, that it's mm. a space, but also it's a performance of a genre. That there's generic mm. rules. Like if you were playing um, country music, you might wear, I guess, a checked shirt and dress and hat, a cowboy hat, right? Yeah. Um, but. It doesn't necessarily mean you're spending every night drowning your sorrows in booze because that's the lyrics of a country song or whatever. But <laughs> say that too, we're conforming to a genre, you know, um, mm. to be screaming about blood, screaming bloody gore is part of the genre. Um, but they were at very much at pains. They sort of recognised, okay, um, I do sing this that's violent, like obviously, and sometimes particularly violent towards women. But, um, I mean, first there would be a common sense appeal to to the people I knew. You know me. You know I'm not like that. Mm. But once you kind of common sense appeal to a society and say, okay, well, can, tell, can you tell me more about it? They say, well, yeah, that that's not really me on stage. That's Jay as the lead singer of Fuck I'm Dead or... Mm. And I'm just having a bit of a fun. It's a laugh. I'm I'm adhering to the genre and I'm pushing the genre in new places by getting more and more brutal, more and more extreme with e- either the form, so say fast drumming, um, um, extreme shifted vocals or something, and the form of the form, I mean the form of the music, but also mm. the form of the content lyrics. Um, you know, how gross can you be? But often I'd also find um, they displace it as well within the sense, like I said last time um, or said earlier, um, by saying, well, I'm drawing on a local, um, not not a violent act committed by me, but one that was committed by a murderer. So Mm. um, burning of Jandamara O'Shane, again, was like a, a news story in the late 90s, a young boy who was burnt to death think by a family member mm. and they have a song Jandamara is burning or Licky, li, fucking Nikki Webster which is she'd been the Sydney Olympics virginal mm-hmm. right like so more and more obscene as you could get who could who could make fun of or imply having sex with Nikki Webster or make fun of this poor young kid who's um 
burnt, but it was kind of like, well, Jay didn't burn them. Jay doesn't want to fuck Nikki Webster, but someone might, and this is not me, you know. Hill mm-hmm. might have sung the Jandamara one, but um, I think, yeah, they often saw it, yeah, just as something that was, I guess, like an actor, I suppose, mm. um, or even Irving Goffman's stuff would be read his, yeah. his ideas of sociology of mm-hmm. On stage and off stage, which we have in our everyday lives, but in this case, it's literal. But mm. pretty much switching off once they walked off stage, especially the Australians. The Japanese guys were often because they had those little mini recorders. They were often exhausted, like breath-wise. Mm-hmm. Were sort of more. I did feel like I got a more earnest. Like I said, they talk about their body. It's like an orgasm, right? Whereas the Australian guys would continue with the jokey performance on those quick mini records mm. um i but, noticed oh sorry i know i'm just yeah go on well this is kind of leads into the question we had next because you're mentioning um some of the questions of uh discussions of balance towards women etc uh, and you have an interesting chapter in your book on the balance between effective brutality, which is often treated as feminized, and then represented brutality, which is seen as more masculine in both scenes. But while this is all, you know, um, performative in a way, these kinds of discussions, you did notice that in reality, uh, there was aspects of exclusion of women from these scenes in terms of kind of uh, practical, uh, ac- actual literal exclusion of fans. I'm wondering... Overall, did you see any key differences between the two contexts in relation to this area? And do you see this kind of changing over time? Like, do you feel, was the Japanese scene a bit more exclusionatory or was the Australian scene kind of changing in response to maybe getting tired of some of these themes? Did you notice any of this uh, either, I guess, cross-temporal or cross-cultural contrasts? Good good question. And um, you both would have more of a knowledge of the more recent um, I guess, manifestations of the scene. But when I was doing field work, um, it, there was literally less women, both, both scenes, less percentage-wise, there were less women um, going to gigs and far less performing. There were more women um, fans than performers as well in both scenes. Um, but... Um, the Japanese scene did have actually have more women, um, though they were less than men, um, than the Australian scene involved, um, and including in bands. So, I mean, you can say, okay, bigger population, right? But I saw all female bands, um, even bands in drag, though I think it would be just drag rather than what we call... Mm gender they were um, more like they in fact that what they were kind of cosplay outfits um, right mm-hmm. that was star set six which is quite a big Tokyo grind band um, so I saw them perform in but cosplaying women yeah I, I'm not sure whether that was particular I mean that was transgressive in the sense of pushing extremities rather than statement about queer politics or something mm-hmm. mm. but um, Women in the Japanese scene, um, I found, were more likely to be involved in the mosh pit, though. Mm. Um, mosh was almost more of a sacred space. Um, 
no, it, in, it was sort of contradictory. It was a special space. Like you really didn't want to go in there unless you could mosh or do the circle kicking or circle type of moshing. So you sort of had to almost have skill to do it. But if you had the skill, you could go in. And I definitely saw more women doing that. Whereas in Melbourne, the mosh was much more freestyle, free for all. And um, yeah, frankly, it was dominated by men. And also the women I spoke to in the scene would often say they did feel in both scenes um, excluded, but not explicitly wasn't as though any of the men were saying, we don't want women in bands or um, women can't play their instruments, but they would have had comments. So some of the women who played in bands, oh, you play drums well for a girl, those sorts of comments, mm. which today mm. I think would be called out and, uh, you know, um, criticised. Um, but mm. Back then, the women realised that this was sexist but didn't really speak up about it. They sort of just, in fact, oh, this, it's sort of good. You know, they kind of internalised. It's sort of good. That just helps me to play harder so I can keep up with how brutal the guys are. Um, mm -hmm. But um, then I'd talking to women uh, specifically, particularly in Australia, about, okay, this imagery, which is quite sexist towards women, but you're up the front here dancing along enjoying it what can you tell me about that oh well I know it's not real or I know such and such and he's not like that but then other women would say I, th I disagree with it but um I think if I, I th I'm happy to if they're on a, a lineup I might I might not go up the front or I might go to the front bar and not listen to them but I'm not going to boycott the gig but then, of course, there were other women who did boycott particular bands and say, um, and try and get others to do so too. So have a mass boycott. So but around vaginal carnage, that happened. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the women I interviewed, Evelyn, who um, was at Pink Palace um, and played in True Radical Miracle, which was, I guess, more metal, art metal-y, sort mm. of on the edge of the scene. But she had been going out with the drummer from Agents of Abhorrence, Max. So that was a full grind band. Um, anyway, Evelyn was a drummer. Um, Evelyn is now th they. They ended up um, launching the Listen campaign, which I'm sure you've heard of in Melbourne which was um, a, an, a, a campaign to address the lack of women and, and, or non-cis people in lineups. Um, and Evelyn, she, he, they wrote a great op-ed. It would have been a few years ago, um, but I'm just sort of pointing out because they were originally a grindcore drummer wrote a great op-ed saying listen you know you don't listen to us or you do listen and say yeah we realize women are underrepresented but what can we do so the listen campaign was to sort of push um venues like the tote and stuff to when they're doing booking okay are there women included are there non-cis people included and um 
that actually sort of took quite off. I think Melbourne City Council ended up backing it and it ended up moving out of her hands because it also tried to deal with um, cases of actual violence against women in, across music scene in um, Australia. But That started in the grand Corps scene then. Yeah, it did. Mm. Um, I'll try and find her original write-up. I think it was on a website called Mess and Noise, which is now defunct. But I think the page is, like, it's still there in the universe. But, yeah, um, they and they now still perform, but it's much so far from Grindcore. It's um, a singer-songwriter, but it's still experimental. Mm -hmm. But I guess at the time... They were very young as well when I interviewed them. So, and by the time Listen came about, the scene, you know, they'd been in the scene for en enough time. In fact, I understood they were sick of it. Mm. Yeah. But that representative versus affective brutality was is a key thing. And I was, um, you know, coming back to it, when was it? Yesterday, like a, a supervising a student. Um, we're trying to um, unpack this idea of affect a little bit. And I was thinking about this idea. So, yeah, the idea was that there was an ability to put a difference between um, the, ling the, the, the linguistic signifiers, um, we might say, like using Ferdinand de Saussure or someone, um, and I'm not a linguist, so <laughs> I could be picking some random thing, but the words themselves and kind of um, disavowing the signified in a way um, in favour of the experience they're having in the pit, which is mm -hmm. effective. And that is brutal. That's really brutal. That feels great. Brutal, you know, great job. Mm -hmm. The representational brutal, representational brutal would be a focus where the signifier of raped with a chainsaw is really taken as matching the signified and taken as, okay, he is thinking of or discussing or wants to action a rape with a, with a chainsaw. Have um, you read uh, Filipov's Death Metal and Music Criticism? Yes, I have. Yeah, her, her term of, uh, I believe, reflexive anti-reflexivity seems to fit quite well into kind of what you're discussing, I, uh, perhaps. I like that too. Mm. A sort and of like not reacting as a reaction to the content and, and that sort of, oh, I, I don't react to this because I, you know, I'm, my reaction is not reacting is kind of part of participating. And it's something that I think every metal fan has experienced in, um, as, as a listener or lyricist or anyone who, you know, when you're driving your car and singing along to a song that promotes acts that you might not participate in in the day-to-day -day life. Well, like that, I was thinking of that scene in Office, have you seen Office Space? Oh, of course. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> Where the gangster rap and he's like, ooh, mm -hmm. in that town, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I suppose that's a... a, a I mean, obviously not metal, but I suppose there's a lot of parallels then to the, uh, um, especially when we're talking about kind of the working class and the hiding it, right? Driving to your job, listening to songs about death and torture, and then working nine to five and coming home. 
and metal is always seen as less classy or fashionable or trendy than um, so other so-called indie or independent music, melodic music. Or, yeah. But um, that reflexive anti-reflexivity is really good too because it kind of even reminds me of how, yeah, we operate in an everyday life. Um, I don't like always quoting him, but Zizek's idea that we know, say, that um, Starbucks is an unethical corporation. We know that, but we buy the coffee anyway and perhaps um, put a, a five-cent piece in, like, the jar for the Guatemalans in the, mm -hmm. um, where we know we're being exploited by Starbucks. But it, I think it's a way it operates in everyday life, but in a particular way, particularly when you... Um, um, uh, consume a product which has uh, problematic representations. So I didn't, although I found in the Japanese one there was the racist element, right? There was nationalist mm -hmm. bands, but they were genuinely nationalists. They weren't, there wasn't reflexive, anti-reflexivity. Mm. But um, Sorry, that actually kind of jumps into our, a question we were just about to ask. So if you don't mind if I kind of uh, link that in, because one thing we both found very striking in your book is that uh, Grindcore, I mean, politics and metal have always had kind of a fraught relationship over, uh, you know, metal, um, we'd argue, is, is inherently political as, as the question of politicians decide and whether or not we can listen to metal in many countries. Uh, <laughs> but the question of whether or not they can be explicitly political has always been an, uh, an issue. And talking to some Japanese bands, for instance, I found some that say that there's things they want to say, but they don't really know how. And we had an interview um, about a month ago with an artist who said that he thought that writing good metal lyrics and writing good political lyrics were two different skill sets. And while they kind of wanted to do both, they didn't think they were good enough at the political one. So they just stuck to the kind of metal stuff. But grindcore has always been kind of explicitly uh, since you know the napalm death, and in the Western scene, it's been explicitly extremely left wing. Whereas when you were in Japan and talking to the Japanese bands, you had a lot of very very right wing nationalist uh, grindcore bands, and we thought of a few questions waiting this. But the first is, I guess, did you find? nationalism to be a trend in the Japanese metal scene in general, or was it something that was very kind of brewing within the grindcore scene explicitly? I reckon it was general because um, probably the most nationalist event I, mean, I went to was a night um, actually Corrupted played at it, who aren't a particularly, they're not a racist band, but they were the headliners. But the other, there was a few other racist um, groups and some of them were that oi music, like oi punk, which, mm. again, has a history of being, you've got Screwdriver um, being the big one in America, white supremacist band, but also um, the historically in the British scene, oi punk has been associated with um, white, white nationalism. So that gig... Um, mm. Well, like, I guess it was a punk metal gig. Um, and, yeah, some of that samurai death metal stuff verged into it. And even Infernal Revulsion, where the chap, I said, who was also my interpreter, he did quite um, 
harbour, very, it wasn't even casual right here. He was a racist, particularly against Koreans and um, uh, migrants, non-white migrants to Japan, you know, migrant workers um, uh, uh, from uh, the Philippines, you know, other Asian countries, those sorts of things. And I, um, then, of course, there was a venue called Daitorio, I think. I'm not sure, but they um, sort of had a whole scene of bands that would play there and would have the Imperial, the JIA flag mm. up mm -hmm. and that kind of um, style, a bit like Nazi style, though not, not German Nazi, but that um, World Pacific War era um, signifiers and would say between songs, you know, get rid of Koreans. What would be a major thing was the Korean angle. Um, they didn't particularly seem to mind me being in the audience um, as a white person, but that, that was a broader... There was grind bands that would play in those lineups, but they'd be broader sort of metal punk lineups. Um, and some, I didn't get to interview Corrupted on the record, but I had spoken to Chu, who I think was the bassist informally. Um, and he, I'd brought it up and he said, oh, we don't agree with that, but it's a good gig. So, I mean, the ethics was sort of, um, like a good, it was a big venue, um, big crowd, that sort of thing. So um, whereas also at the same time, one pub, not pub, live house we used to go to, Hokage, was a real heart of this scene, had um, food not bombs nights. They were much more than what you'd expect of the grindcore scene. Um, with the Dahl and um, sharing that out. And then they actually organised a summer camping festival. And again, the Food Not Bombs people were there and that was much more progressive and no, no um, none of those bands that um, were associated with the Daitorio scene, which was that particular venue that had those bands, would um, come to that because that's another thing in Japan you often almost had a, ha a home live house like a, a haunt that mm. you um, what you were kind of known to play at though they'd play all places oh they're the Hokage scene or guys mm -hmm. um, so that I suppose in Australia you have that like people who oh, I love playing the tote or what I know I keep mentioning the tote but the art house was the other one though that's long gone. Mm. But, I think um, these days maybe the bendy but oh yeah that's a definitely a home of yeah people who were mentioning that oh this is a new venue coming up and all this sort of thing so um and in, in Melbourne definitely much more progressive or left-wing politics. And those guys who were singing dreadful songs about women were all sort of people who'd literally been involved in picket lines, strikes, had the, had the right kind of, and in real life were <laughs> progressive, but this is often a problem in left-wing circles, um, dealing mm. with and non-cis, non non-straight people sometimes is a problem like uh, 
they can be a good comrade but not quite get it in terms of gender mm. um, yeah but yeah that was a bit a remarkable thing in as in I remarked on it <laughs> yeah literally remarkable <laughs> yeah. well I mean where do you think this disconnect maybe comes from because uh I've been interviewing a bunch of Japanese bands recently and a lot of them start by saying, oh, I didn't care about the lyrics. It was all about the music. But as they become lyricists, they've started reading the lyrics more and more and more. I'm just wondering, did you have any insights on how people that perhaps grew up reading translated Napalm death lyrics and stuff ended up singing about, I guess, the like from a perspective that's the exact opposite? Yeah, I'm, I have a feeling like, because I, I would say that, that I'd say, what bands were your inspirations? And they'd, use, they'd say Napalm Death, Brutal Truth, um, uh, various uh, foreign, uh, not foreign, but to them, Anglo Anglophone bands, right? Then SOB would be the Japanese band that inspired them. And, um, but I'm not sure how many of them had bothered to read and understand the lyrics of those bands, but I mean, they do have songs like quite clearly called like anti-corporate or, you know what I mean, that album. Mm -hmm. um, I think perhaps, again, you go back to a question of genre, it becomes rendered sort of not mean meaningful only in terms of its transgressive quality or um, I mean, and its transgressive quality only works in terms of adherence to generic constructions, i.e. one doesn't have to be against multinationals or um, be against capitalism. That's just sort of seen as, oh, that's part of the genre, so I'll add some words in here or there that, that equate to that to conform to the genre. But in a way, it was sort of rendered the same as, say, copying or riffing off a guitar style or um, a style of singing or, or um, screaming, so. Could this even be arguably said like reflexively, anti-reflexive political opinions? Yeah, I think so. I mean, and it could, I'd also go as far as say they are reactionary opinions, but they are ways of people fight, sort of negotiating in the world. Like, I mean, one, one, the guy who owned the live, uh, not live house, the little bar, the standing bar, he um, was a member of the, the Communist Party in Japan. Um, however, I thought from what I have read, that isn't too crazy over there. Like they are a party people. It's still a significant party, though it doesn't get traction in elections. Yeah, it's very common when you're just walking around to see um, Communist Party uh flyers and not like in the I think if I say that for people that haven't been to Japan they might think like little pamphlets littering the street but like the the big there's the walls you'll pass that has like every politician's flyer that's in the election and there's always uh one that just says Japanese Communist Party and it's, it's not like surprising or anything it's just that it's just a party that's right that's that's what he didn't say it in a sense of oh I'm, I'm showing you my radical credentials or anything it was just he'd, he'd joined up when he he was one of the few who'd gone to university actually mm. he joined up then and um had kept up but um yeah i think it is uh, uh, that um reflexive anti -ref, uh, anti reflexivity and also i think um michelle writes really well about that but so does keith khan harris in yeah. his reflection on his own 
his his Jewishness, but his love of the black, uh, you know, the Nazi black metal from Norway, um, which has always been, that was a thing I asked all of them about and the Japanese people, yeah, did not see any problem listening to that music at all, whereas the Australia, white Australians, that was absolutely um, not acceptable. Mm. Oh, I listened to Varg. No way. I mean, that guy's insane. That's not what we do. And I don't like black metal anyway. And even bands that were sort of, and it was kind of, again, relatively relatively recent, the, that case, um, but bands trying to start up doing black metal, like you might know them still, actually. A guy called Tom and his then-wife, Emily, what was the band called? They were a black metal band from Melbourne, but they I'm not sure if they still play. Um, but they also had lived in Japan. Anyway, they got a hard time even starting. Their music was not about Nazi imagery or anything like that, but just the idea that they were playing black metal connoted that. So people sort of were, um, you know, ugh. But I think that shifted now that I still think people wouldn't openly listen to that music, especially now we can see what people are listening to, you know, on Spotify can go. (laughs) But I think people in Australia are more open to people performing black metal, um, Mm. knowing not all black metal is Nazi metal. I think uh, Jess can speak to this as well, but we've seen, um, you know, black metal kind of explicitly trying to distance itself with there's some um been some really really good uh black metal coming out from people that are more explicitly progressive whereas black metal used to kind of hide it uh there's a band that we were hoping to interview but they unfortunately didn't get back to us very very minor uh they're called circlin and it's uh, i think a finnish guy and it's you know it's very lord of the ringsy like literally yeah, yeah, uh, singing about it but when we were looking to interview them we went on their facebook page uh and like it's just this little comment in the corner, like under their bio says, I love black metal, not fascism. And yeah. it was like, okay, like this seems to be almost a, a desire to kind of, you know, distance themselves while still, like we've interviewed some black metal bands in, in Melbourne and they've kind of brought up the, uh, oh yeah, I can't listen to, you know, can't listen to those or even Googling um, a band before they, that they like to see if there's stuff that, you know, might be out there. That yeah, Google before you listen. But. Yeah, Google before you listen. And there's memes in the that gets shared around the community too, of like you know, smiling face of found a nice band and then frowning face, you know, oh they're. Listen, that they're memeing like that. It becomes another kind of. It's an agreed upon everyday practice that if you're listening to this music, it's worth checking. Mm. Um, then that becomes another layer of media production where you're producing the circulation of memes. Mm. And I think, um, and, and in Japan even, um, black metal, I sort of would think someone like Goldhammer, the, which is an all-woman band, they're kind of black metal to me, or, or Doom, Doom maybe. They do have elements of black metal and they don't sing about, um, they're not nationalists at all. It is more like the pain of life sort of stuff, endless nauseous days, I think is their album. But 
Um, though I should, one of them is married to a guy from that scene, but it's, it's I think he's from Satyricon though, not. All right. Yeah. Not, um, a, not, not a Varg type character, but yeah, I. Yeah, there's, I a, there's a bit of a gap. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> quite a wide one. Yeah, in fact, um, to, to my knowledge, Sturicon's actually received quite a lot of backlash from the old school black metal community for being quite like progressive and, you know, liking Armani suits and that kind of like consumerism, like anti-underground stuff. Yeah, I think that it, argument kind of does exhaust itself, but <laughs> yeah. I think all subcultures have that story of the sellout or... Um, mm. um, in Melbourne particularly, um, again, because maybe I didn't see or get the nuances in the language or remarks that other people were making in Japan, but in Melbourne certainly um, bands like Blood Duster made fun of bands like Parkway Drive mm -hmm. um, as kind of emo, oh, pop metal, and they did an album shoot where they dressed up as emos and sort of I think they even played emo clubs for fun. I can't remember. There was a club in Melbourne um, that used to sort of have a club night of emo back when emo was a, you know, a really popular genre. Um, they played and it was like, oh, you know, all these teeny boppers were there, that sort of thing. Um, but it was, I guess that wasn't that they were thinking a sellout from someone who was on the underground, but that some, some types of metal or hard music words automatically sell out or um, mm. less worthy because they were pop popular. Yeah. But I do remember Parkway Drive being um, a sort of shorthand for lame. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I suppose that kind of relates to another question that I was going to ask earlier, which is about, you know, to what degree you kind of view a lot of the practices we're talking about as being kind of specific to grindcore versus, you know, metal in general, because, you know, something that we, uh, you know, this is kind of related to our discussion just now is that um, something that we've noticed in Australia, for instance, is that there does seem to be very clear divisions between like death metal and black metal and thrash metal and you know grindcore and so on um you know even between like the fans of those bands i mean i'm pretty sure that you could probably clearly identify just by looking at someone what kind of sub genre they fit into yep. um, but also there's you know that kind of rivalry between those genres as well um yeah i suppose like we were wondering yeah to what extent do you kind of like view these practices as being yeah more particular to grindcore versus like something that's um i suppose common to all of them it's a good um question i mean at the time i did the field work there wasn't um a huge i don't think the scene is was as big as it is now so with grindcore it was often on death metal um or crusty on with crusty or death metal bands mm -hmm. And people would come and go, you know, they'd go up the front. It was, there were like a few couple of full grind events, including a couple, the Melbourne Grind Fest um, happened, I think, three years, which was amazing. And that really was like back-to-back -back grind. And they had um, bands from Sydney come down and Brisbane and that sort of thing. But, um, or say an American uh, or a foreign band would come over who was a grind band, then you could fill 
fill it with a grind support band, but sometimes death, me death metal would also be on the um, uh, lineup. But so I think there was a bit more of a mix, but people would often, uh, in the interviews at least, say, oh, I hate death death metal it's a boring death metal is worse than hip-hop or boring death metal is worse than even parkway drive um because mm. they're so pompous um we we guys in grind we don't take ourselves seriously we're we're having a laugh taking the pit you know um whereas death metal and even thrash to an extent has that um you know the skill the value of um like the skilled solo or mm -mm. or the man or the or the front man being a, a big serious scary dude like chris barnes of um cannibal corpse or something whereas all those guys in grind were singing scary stuff they were sort of self-effacing and self-deprecating through that jokiness mm -hmm. but that jokiness if you're not in on the joke that can be quite clicky and exclusionary um so but a big thing that occurred not big but one thing that occurred while I did the field work in Melbourne so say that was maybe over three years if I include the honours project um was uh some some of the chaps they mostly were um, tangentially involved in the art scene, avant-garde art spaces. So, like, at that time, what was there? Like, um, there was a place called Irene's Warehouse in Brunswick. Um, also, even places like Bus Gallery, I think that's still going, and um, TCB in the city. Um, so, these were artist-run initiatives. I think they'll... Um, and a few times bands like Agents of Abhorrence, Collapse Toilet Vietnam, White Horse. So grind bands uh, played at these gallery spaces um, as an avant-garde performance mm -hmm. provided by the gallerists. And um, I quite liked those. My cultural capital being high, perhaps higher in the sense that I'd be—I was doing a PhD, right? Mm -hmm. And I could see, okay, the, this could be taken as avant-garde art rather than bad music. Mm -hmm. Many guys in the scene saw that sort of group of men who were sort of straddling between grind and art as wankers. So, mm -hmm. you know. Oh, would never. Oh, who'd want to play to a gallery? Oh, that's for wankers. That sort of attitude as well. So mm -hmm. there was some tension there. Um, so those guys did also play live sets. There was always a bit of a. Oh, they're not. They weren't part of the Melbourne Grind Syndicate, for example. Mm -hmm. Did you notice any kind of sense of? Uh fooling around, humor, taking the piss in the Japanese scene, or conversely, any kind of artistic art rock takes on grindcore or was this something that was kind of Australia focused? I saw again I, I wasn't sure of some of the nuance like one um, uh, band would uh, tirelessly banter in, in the set between songs and the crowd would laugh and when I recorded it play it back to the translator or interpreter and he would say 
oh yeah he's talking about sumo wrestlers smoking dope and as again it was the news of the day but they do this band I wish I could remember their name it is it could be Warhead um they're an older grant like a stalwart of the scene contemporaries of SOB so they'd be guys hitting almost 50 now um they would do things like um he was a real performer he'd have uh, he'd have sake on stage. He had to have sake, and that was brought by the Kohai fans. And he would drink that and then spit it back at the crowd. And particularly, this one woman who was, I don't know if you call her a groupie, but one of their main fans would come up the front. And it's quite unhealthy, really, in COVID time. So he'd spit it from his mouth into hers, and then she'd spit it. <laughs> That was kind of, I guess, a ritual, but also a, perform, a, a kind of, um, uh, well, maybe not funny, but he'd also pull big faces. Like, uh, I mean, you could you could push it and say, okay, um, he's doing. What's this type of theatre? No, far out. No theatre. Yeah. Um, those kinds of um, turns of. Mm-hmm. Um, base but I'm not sure if that was his intention again he was a hard uh, it was a working class type of chap um but um so but again I said I might the banter might have been I might have been at a disadvantage there but there was definitely kind of some towards the art scene that band reality crisis where I said the man took his clothes off and sort of writhed around and Mm. that night at least there were more sort of that art crowd sort of band with projections as well like um experimental film people doing that like it was an audio visual show almost so people were playing with the projector and scratching tape and um and then I saw Mersbau a few times oh but that that was at Namba Bears, which is kind of, it was a scene, a, a venue owned by a guy from, uh, well, from Boredoms. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, he was, also had a grind side act, which I can't remember the name of, but that was kind of a, a punk metal venue, but it did have noise bands. But I have to say when Mersbau played, the supports were art bands and the crowd or avant-garde noise, Proud was quite different. I think. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Mersbo is, is not what I would picture playing at a grindcore scene, and politics as well. I believe, like, they're a, um explicit vegan, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. He's, he's even come here to New Zealand, which is bizarre. We barely get any, um, but... Yeah, I guess he sort of runs the gaunt. Like I said, for me, I thought, oh, to me, it makes sense. I like Mersbow and, and metal because they're both heavy and extreme music. But yeah, I wasn't seeing the same crew at Bears, Namba Bears that night. Whereas usually on a Friday, they'd have, a, you, uh, I guess, I guess because he was a more significant performer, you'd see the same type of blokes, mostly guys, and, but lots of girls. And the music would be um, crust, punk, gr- or grind. So there was that sort of um, 
the art stuff didn't and for instance that reality crisis with the projections that night from what I can remember they, they were heavy bands they were metal it wasn't noise but um they were more towards the experimental side yeah hmm. but it was in a live space they weren't like the Australian ones as far as I know I didn't look into it in detail there but there wasn't a sort of crossover with them actually playing at gallery spaces yeah this is sort of changing topics but you talked a bit actually it's kind of going back a bit to something we discussed but you you mentioned in your book uh the role of taboo topics uh in establishing a position as metal as deviant and outsider exploring topics like we've discussed rape murder etc being a rebellion and rejection of normative mainstream culture that kind of places metal heads outside of quote-unquote uh decent society i believe you call them the straights uh oh. is that a mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, like those. Term. Sorry, what? Squares or squares? I might. Squares. Say. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, the sort of um, placing the metalheads outside of the the norm or the quote unquote decent society. But given that what is considered taboo is quite often culturally specific, um, we are wondering how bands from a Japan, Australia maybe engage or treat topics as taboo in their cultures. Did you notice anything regarding language or just presentation imagery that, or how people spoke at the shows that was different between the two scenes, uh, between two, how Japan and Australian grindcore attempted to be transgressive and kind of outsiders? I reckon, um, I think in both spaces, the, the chatter at the shows was chatter about the scene. So, you know, that was a great set. Um, oh, have you heard the latest such and such album? Or mm. Like they were talking about obscene topics. They were, I mean, they talk, especially in Australia, of course, where I'm fluent with the language, you talk about matters of the day. In um, Japan, I found that too. Um, you would talk about music, but it, it wasn't like they were discussing who their favourite serial killers were or anything, particularly more than anyone else would. So I couldn't, but um, they, I guess the markings of being outside decent society is through the the signify the brutal representations, the signifiers within the the musical production elements. So their album covers, which would have obscene images, sometimes um, the the song titles, the typed lyrics, they're often not literally enunciated. Um, the stage craft, you know, uh, blood, guts, all that sort of stuff, or, or nudity. Um, but I guess the other ways they might do it was living outside decent society through, at least in the Australian scene, rejection of um, traditional housing spaces in the living in squats or shared um, warehouse DIY spaces. And again, also um, drug use, um, plus the uh, work, work uh, at least to a certain extent, again, it's probably not really even possible today, but living on the dole. Like there was a time in the 90s where you could live on the dole and the early 2000s and not have too much pressure to go and find a job. Um, you could collect that dole and you wouldn't be forced to sort of go take the job. So they were kind of living... 
um, and that would be their everyday kind of transgression of what's expected of you as a willing worker or happy nuclear family uh, site or student, you know, or, or some of them were students, but, um, but mostly I'd say um, the transgression of decency was through those brutal representations. Was there a difference between how those representations manifested in, in the two scenes? Oh yeah, okay, yeah, good question. Um, well, I think in both scenes, the artwork and flyers hinged heavily on obscene imagery of, um, you know, pornographic images mm. of women or violent images of um, death, destruction either from war or crime. Um, again, but of course, this this also goes back as far as Carcass or something where they used um, disgusting images of disease and things like that. But um, I think in, I felt like the Melbourne one, they compounded it almost through things like they'd have, as I think I wrote in the book, the guitar, uh, the, the drum kit would be decorated with these images as well in some bands underneath mm -hmm. band where that happened. Whereas in Japan, it was often the live houses gear. People didn't have gear in their own home because they live in small houses. Mm -hmm. so using the, the live houses drum kit and perhaps guitars as well. I mean, sometimes they brought that, but they weren't decorated. But, um, and in Melbourne, you'd have things like, as I said, pro pro not projections, but some venues had video screens where they'd show Texas Chainsaw Massacre or horror movies, which fit in with the broader aesthetic. Um, Japan, it was more the flyers and posters, because like in every live house, it, the walls are just covered in posters and the toilets and the flyers are a much more big thing because like you leave every gig your handed flies and even sometimes free CDs um, from people who want to get our up and comers. Mm -hmm. and they were often um, obscene, not just in the image, but also in the language. So um, there'd be things, uh, yeah, obscene names of bad language, you know, shit fuckers or uh, vaginal cut. Like they sort of be clunkily used, but picking obscene English words to sort of, um, uh, I guess, again, it conform to the genre and even right down to the fonts, right? Those uh, droopy, you know, metal. Yeah. Font. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so that sort of thing. So again, their transgression of decency, but it's a transgression of that, but it's conformist in that transgression, the, the, the sort of product that comes out at the end looks similar across both cultural spaces. Mm -hmm. And that extends to the language as well, you were saying, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Even, um, and it's interesting that they import English words to signify the obscenity rather than Although I did, because I did do this second round of field work about the Nicajian, the Brazilian workers in the scene in Nagoya. 
Mm-hmm. One of their bands was called Puta, which is Spanish for whore, right? right. So, but in that case, they were, okay, it must be Portuguese for whore as well, because they were Portuguese speakers. But they, in their case, they hadn't imported an English obscene word, they imported one from their language. So, again, these guys were Japanese background or blood, as they would say but had grown up in Sao Paulo and migrated to work in Nagoya. But, but again, they, used, they weren't using Japanese words to signify it. It was an obscene word from another culture. Mm-hmm. Who used Japanese names were more like, well, Birushana and Ryukuchi were more kind of like, like Birushana I think is a reference to a Buddhist um, figure, ancient Buddhist. In a way, they could be, they're not black metal though, they're grind. Ryukuchi is kind of like a grass, some sort of natural thing, but mostly the bands used um, English or in the case of Nagoya, um, Portuguese. Mm. Yeah. Do you find any uh, trends between which bands used Japanese names, which used uh, borrowed English terms? Was there any clear dividing line or was it just kind of haphazard? It was a bit haphazard, but I do have to say that um, venue, Daitorio, which was quite national, which was nationalist, um, more likely for kanji to be on the flyers, mm-hmm. um, no translation, um, though sometimes they had English um words but that i did i think i did do a crunch the data of like collecting the flies and sort of cataloging them at one point and daitorio had much more on the flyers so more bands that would and that was a major thing too um one of the guys said well we sing we don't sing in Japanese because singing in Japanese makes you sound like a Japanese nationalist band. Mm. So in, in metal, in grindcore, mm-hmm. connotations of that too. Um, even if our English is bad, we prefer to sing in that or at least have those words in the, in the liner notes than the Japanese because singing or writing in Japanese in this genre connotes a nationalist um, sentiment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, I, oh, sorry. I, I interviewed a, a Japanese band that actually does sing in Japanese because they do. And we that was kind of, sort of rare. And part of the interview was actually them distancing themselves from uh, bands that sing in Japanese that maybe have a bit of that bent. They're, they're quite aware of they've been accused of, of Japanese nationalism and they, they wanted to make it quite clear that that wasn't their uh, stance, despite, yeah. despite also being interested in, uh, like they, they, you know, they were interested in samurai and they liked kanji and things like that, but they wanted to make it very clear that, you know, they enjoyed touring internationally and, and wanted fans from around the world and things like that. Yeah, but it's interesting they have to say, oh, again, I'm aware that this looks this way and the norm is if you're doing this signaling these this Japanese-ness, you're could be nationalist. Um, the, that sort of shows um, 
how how the foreign language sits as well to signify perhaps a cosmopolitanism or mm. non-nationalist um, view. On, on a lighter side, I also encountered a band that um, uh, thought that if you sung in Japanese, everyone would think you're a visual K. <laughs> well, I know. <laughs> Uh, that's the other thing, because of course, Japanese pop is largely in Japanese. Mm. But I think they and then Visual K people go, oh, "You like Japanese metal? You must like Visual K." And I'm mm. like, "No, not really." But um, yeah, I suppose I can understand that too. You're either um, demonstrating your aspira aspirations towards a, a crossover hit as a pop. <laughs> <laughs> visual k pop star or you want to go fully underground and um you're some kind of anti-korean nutcase um not nutcase but um purist yeah. Mm. yeah like to what extent do they see like their use of english as being um i suppose directed towards like a predominantly japanese speaking audience versus like a more international audience yeah that's a good point um because i think they most of the bands I interviewed had initially started out well certainly just considering a local audience as in a national audience um, and had usually toured extensively across the country even up to Sapporo and those places um, um, but then there was this moment where quite a few toured Australia and they were very keen um, to sort of, they even, I remember asking, they asked one of the um, singers from one of the Australian bands to have a look over their English or can you improve it, the lyrics wise. And again, it's not the lyrics that you can even hear. It's the, the, the liner notes that they're wanting help on, that sort of thing. Um, and yes, all of them spoke apart from the samurai metal band about a, a much very keen to appeal to um, English speaking audiences and to have uh, a, a chance to tour in those um, places, particularly America. Um, they weren't sort of, you know, dreaming of big hits, but this idea that it would come over more more to a west a west western world if you spoke or not spoke but had some english elements and they were all very keen but the same i guess is when the australians toured japan they were keen to sort of try and speak japanese so the japanese when they visited were very keen to speak um english but uh, both times the visitors from japan came to melbourne hide also came so this interpreter so um there was a bit more reliance on him though they would try quite um uh hard to pick pick up so pick up um english and then again with the nagoya scene um the young people in that uh were often on short visas and hoping to continue playing back in brazil um they were singing in Portuguese, so um, mm. also had. And the the thing of singing in Portuguese in Nagoya was they had Japanese origins, but Japanese speaking first language fans, but also the fans who were also the Nikajin as well. 
One cultural difference I might point out was um, I remember, so when, I don't know if this is in the book, but it could be of interest, was when um, the Australian groups would tour Japan, they were hosted, billeted with, you know, guys from the scene and taken out to dinner and the uchiages and um, hosted very well, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas in Australia, the Japanese visitors were the same thing. They'd stay with scene members. But an, I think a number of times it would come up and it would come up through Hide's translation, he'd say they're not, they don't feel hosted very well, like they wouldn't be fed uh, properly. Uh, <laughs> there wasn't enough food or fuss about food like they'd oh we'll just stop at the petrol station on the Hume Highway on the way to Sydney and buy a pie and just expect the Japanese people to pick something off the shelf to buy and that was a side of tension they sort of expected to be not taken to a restaurant but perhaps sit down in a McDonald's and eat together Um, and also um, they found I think in some cases they had to stay at squats and that variable mm-hmm. um, to some of the Japanese members. But, again, they didn't, it wasn't till afterwards that Hidei sort of communicated that back and said perhaps the next tour we could have it so they're staying at people's houses rather than one of the places was called Maggotsville up in Sydney, it's America. <laughs> you know, I <laughs> Sounds delightful. Yeah. <laughs> the phrase used was they did not feel well cared for. And I thought, yeah, there was this, a sense of what the host should be doing as well. And perhaps also there wasn't an Uchiage type thing. There would be like perhaps, oh, yeah, let's kick on and grab a few beers, but it would be at everybody's own cost. Mm-hmm. Um uh, uh, yeah, less of the sort of celebration. And it wasn't so much, oh, you did really, really well. It was, yeah, great show, mate, brutal, rather than the Uchiage was much more, your solo was amazing and your t- your take on that, you know, there was a lot more of that talk in Japanese context. So it's very interesting was- to see uh, uh, an ostensibly counterculture genre sort of embodying almost stereotypical business practices. And I agree with you, but it does, it did work like that in a way. I mean, they were pretty rowdy at Uchiage, um, but then the salary men get pretty rowdy. Yes. (laughs) But also, yeah, expectations around hosting and who should be footing the bill. I mean, of course, Australians buy rounds and all that, but they probably would have also expected the Japanese visitors to buy their own round for everybody mm. it was oh wait we're the guests we shouldn't be buying round you know that kind of thing but also uh, the service station incident was brought up you know like <laughs> just grab a sausage roll and we'll eat it in the car and they'll like <laughs> no you know and also that's the other thing so they took Australian bands on tour in Japan I didn't go on one of these but interviewed people who had and it was almost like a tour of the countryside. So they would show them a beauty spot or say this town is famous for udon. So we'll, whereas here it wasn't like 
I, they felt disappointed they didn't get to see kangaroos and things. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Expectation that it would be also, um, you would show us your country in a way. It wouldn't just be um, squats, venues, and service stations. <laughs> yeah. Especially mm. they had done that. I get it. They had done that for them when they. Mm, yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah this kind of relates to just one more question I was kind of interested in asking is just like you know the role of um the kind of cultural capital or in this case subcultural capital because that's come up like a few times over you know a discussion of different topics and I was just kind of I suppose wondering um you know to what extent you kind of saw any kind of differences I suppose given like kind of the differences in the cultural context of like Japan and Australia between uh how members of the same um you know kind of can conceptualize and you know articulate and you know employ subcultural capital in order to kind of negotiate belonging to the respective scenes and yeah well I reckon subcultural capital is such a great um, framework for thinking of how scenes work how people experience them how they operate and how they flow and it's such a I still think Bourdieu's ideas account for how class operates outside of the bottom, the, the, your bank balance account. So the biggest person in the scene, like Grindcore, may not be the one with the most money, but will have high subcultural capital. Mm. So in, in the Australian scene, that subcultural capital was expressed through, um, through material objects, so T-shirts, say a rare you know of course there's a market in that having a rare run of a t-shirt or even any t-shirt a band that might you might that aren't local that you know an obscure band that could give you cultural capital higher but ordinary cultural subcultural capital would be acquired through material things like clothes also objects like um cds lps or cassettes which even though in the time of band camp and Spotify, though I don't know how many of those bands can afford to be put on Spotify, the, the, the object itself still has some value, so materialised through those things, but also materialised in the body, in, in the habitus, so knowing how to behave in the scene, knowing how mm. to hold yourself, um, how to mosh, um, which is, of course, actually, though it looks chaotic, an art form in itself, where to stand, how to dance or, or move, and the responses should be right, yelling brutal rather than <laughs> play something new or um, and even some of the heckles, right? Uh, Melbourne's famous for heckling. Um, you'd have very high cultural capital if your heckle landed and you got into the band. <laughs> on the on the um stage if you heckled and it didn't land and the room was just silent and no one laughed you'd have pretty low cultural capital but it would obviously take a lot to sort of have the have the heft behind you to have the confidence to do a heckle or and moving through the space is key too like you know, drinking the right thing, not drinking. Um, I remember once hearing a bartender say, admittedly, I think it was a friend of mine from uni who'd come along who wasn't a metalhead. 
and he he asked for Long Island iced tea. He must have been an American, very American drink. Sorry, Wes. I don't know. Are you American or Canadian? I am American. Um, don't drink too many Long Island iced teas, but I, I have had one or two in my lifetime. Yes. Where did they ask for the Long Island iced tea? Like, what was the venue? The tote and the <laughs> that girly drink. I don't think a bartender would say that now. Also, because you'd be like. I don't care what you drink. Mm. It would be funny, right? But yeah, they haven't sure the, bar, the bartender said. You know, the bartender said, "Is that a, the bartender?" Yeah, that seems like a bad strategy. Um, yeah, I know. But admittedly, see, this would be ten or twelve years ago. So mm. um, you want a beer, but even you don't just buy a beer. You buy jugs and have your pot glass and share it. Um, so mm. that was habitus as well whereas in japan um beer drinking rituals drinking rituals are different um and i'm not saying they didn't do that this that one band had the sake and the spitting but mostly um uh, cultural capital there was also um materialized through um what was worn mm -hmm. habitus in the space was different so as I said, um, the mosh was a little bit more organised and people had higher skill sets. So the capoeira style kick, um, circle kick dancing um, was, uh, you know, that would be extremely high cultural capital, the guys who could do that. But then um, it was also quite acceptable and even I would consider I, they were revered people who um, stood at the back and just listened very seriously and almost didn't move. They're like they were considering every uh, note very seriously. They were people who were often invited to Uchiage almost as like a, uh, the critic function in um, Bourdieu's broader habit uh, broader field of culture whereas in Australia the people who stood back and they certainly were some who said to me I stand back because I do like to listen but they didn't that wasn't really part of the habitus you'd be seen as a bit of a prickly a bit of a, a no fun a killjoy a no fun type to be standing at the back and not getting into it um, and as far as drinking goes in in um, Japan people would drink beer obviously but also highball cans um uh uh vodkas and it but it wasn't a buying rounds uh culture you'd buy your own drink and of course you got a drink with your ticket as well so you could turn in with your ticket you got one a drink a, a, i think a, a 500 yen drink so it would be a beer i'd say from memory but that case of the girls drink the long island iced tea um again that's me the nuance you get when you get this although that's rude in any culture like if i heard that it wouldn't fly but um, it was a classic i mean in a way he did really want a beer because if you want to be here you've got to fit the habitus right um but I think um, that cultural capital was, yeah, material in fashion items like memorabilia or merch, but also uh, how people moved through the space and who could move freely, who stood in the corner, 
who'd be asked up on stage. You know, that was another thing and probably still happens, share the mic. That happened in both scenes. And as I think I put in that uh, book, often the live houses didn't have raised um, stages. So it was also a quite a, a liminal space between. But they weren't handing the mic or spitting sake at just anyone. It was... Mm-hmm. yeah the people who are up the front with the high cultural capital so mm. yeah it seems to be a bit the same in the Australian scene like regarding uh, kind of exchanges of like sledging and uh, you know that kind of thing it seems to be directed mostly towards people that are recurring kind of characters in the scene who come to all the shows and stuff yeah the, the people um, and it's often a crossover between a performer and fans so they might be sledging he's in the audience now but he'll be up on stage next play Mm -hmm. but even sort of like chronic fans like I don't know if this is on the scene poodle Dave he had long dreadlocks um he wasn't a raster it was a more crusty guy but he actually yeah long he would wear glasses do you know what I mean He'd be quite old now. My husband probably knows, yeah. I don't know his surname, but he was known as Poodle. And he would, I don't think he plays in a band, but he'd be up the front and people would always say, oh, he, what he was famous for is have a beer in one hand and a, like, Jim Beam can in the other. So, yeah, um, but he'd often get sledged. And heckle, there'd be banter between those guys um, that, uh, and he wasn't in another band, but he was just such a devoted fan and a guy who stood out because of his um, long dreadlocks. Um, yeah, mm. very high cultural capital. Low economic, the guy wasn't well off, and also high social capital. He knew everyone in the scene, Um um, again, that would that brings you that sort of coalesces with cultural capital and value in the mm. scene. And you knew how to greet greet people. You know, I mean, I'd heard people say, "Yeah, keep it brutal as a as a goodbye," that kind of thing, or mm. using vocab language, being aware of the slangs, but also aware of what was happening in in the broader grindcore scene globally too. Mm. Um, makes you wonder to what degree like you know kind of knowledge of those like you know metal memes that we were talking about earlier kind of figure into this cultural capital you know something that we see like quite often is like you know quite facetiously referring to something as like true fault um you know when you're kind of taking the piss out of something for being a bit too serious you know trying to be grim black metal or something so yeah, yeah. yeah I wonder if today that's something we could look at that would be I I think see all of that is new at post my research but again and that's a kind of reflexive take up of something that was meant since we well presumed sincerely by um Mm. arian metal and the cavalt thing but then it's being reworked as a signified a sort of in an ironic way is that yeah Yeah, yeah. like if something like, yeah, someone's like trying too hard to be like grim and dark mm-hmm. and everything, like, oh, so true vault and yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah like a spinal hard. tap kind of vibe, I suppose. Because <laughs> there were guys who you'd, 
I mean, that was it. They'd say, I'd say, well, who doesn't fit in in the interview? I'd say that to the people interviewed. Oh, the ones who take it too seriously, um, who just want every want every flyer and um, stand up the front and don't mosh. But they could understand they were appreciating it, but they were kind of uncool. But often, I guess, if people were persistent in going over and over again, you would become part of, you become more comfortable in the habitus. And I guess there's a learn, I mean, there is a, a pedagogy to it. So um, yeah, you could, I, you know, saw guys moving from being quite at the edge of the scene to moving up um, as mm. well. And that trying too hard thing seems to go in both directions. Like, you know, you're trying too hard to be kind of above your station like trying too hard to, you know, be really good or you're trying too hard to be underground when you're not really that, underground you know like you know like um I don't know if this is a case in grindcore but certainly in like black metal it used to be really I suppose in vogue to make really shitty quality recordings um mm. you know like on like tape decks that kind of thing like you know well after that media had really kind of expired and stuff and like that's something that I think was also kind of described as being like oh yeah cool man really fault of you like to you know try so hard and make this ridiculous thing yeah, to sort of get the effect of a sort of background noise. Yeah, 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 the hash, yeah. Crappy tape cassette recordings, totally. I, I've, I've heard a few and bought a few of that type. And you, But I do also guess I tend to think of black metal people do, taking it a bit more seriously. 100%, yeah. Yeah. In fact, uh, you said Grim before. I have a feeling that was the name of the band that these people, Tom and Emily, I knew, started. It could have been called Grim. I'm not sure. I'll, I think it is in my thesis. I can't remember what, what their um, pseudonyms were, but if you flip through the back of the book, there might be some reference to that band. They'd be at, they wouldn't operate anymore, though, I don't think. Um, Mm. Well, Grimm seems pretty consistent with what you'd expect of, like, yeah. you know, very traditional black metal, like, vault kind of outfit. Three dozen bands called Grimm in the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's interesting, that the, the sort of revalorization of cassettes. Yeah, and I think if you sort of were aware of sort of saying, oh, yeah, I did this and to get that, that, that um, background sound of, you know, I'm on the um, the fjords or something like that, or in the wilderness, and it want and it has to sound as shitty as possible, and that shittiness makes it good. Yeah, I think if you tried too hard at that, or if you made a fetish of the technology, like going, oh, yeah. great um, cassette player. Yeah. I mean, huh. like <laughs> never heard that sentence in my entire life. Yeah, I know, the finish of the tape recorder. But if you, to be like cool, at least in, when I was doing that work, the subcultural capital was in the live performance. And if you record, were recording, you didn't want it to be that flash and you certainly weren't bragging about, oh, we've got a great mixing desk or the latest type of... Um, uh, effects pedals like the only effects pedal you'd want would be something like the pitch shifter and even people thought that might have been too pretentious um 
<laughs> like that really paired back form. Like even I remember, sorry, I shouldn't laugh. I remember um, dragging some grindcore fans, my partner at the time and other, um, uh, his, that group to, uh, a, a, again, a uni friend who were in a, I guess you'd call them a prog metal band. Mm -hmm. Or even prog rock. And, yeah, they just, you know, didn't like it. Weren't mean to the people, but afterwards going, oh, well, they've got all those fucking pedals on the floor. <laughs> you know, that had cost them hundreds, not just that it, they wasn't just it was a waste of money, but just that it was overdoing it and, like, you'd having to stop and change the pedals to have these long riffs. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's my impression that there's kind of emerging like this uh, kind of separation of the factions between like people in the scene who are like really into making like, you know, really high quality music, you know, obviously very keen on honing their skills and playing their instruments and stuff and obviously getting the right equipment to kind of produce those effects is going to be pretty integral to that whole process versus other people on the other end of the spectrum that are more interested in kind of maintaining that classic um you know low production sound and effect um but only in a way that i suppose um doesn't suggest that they're trying too hard to do that seems to be like you know if you want to produce a shitty recording that's fine but it can't be something that you're going to great means to do mm. <laughs> it needs to be like you know yes. oh just because that's what you had you know definitely like it has to, if it's a shitty recording, it has to be really shitty. Like, yeah. shitty. Rather than, um, yeah, oh, I've, I've made it sound extra shitty because I've got two really amazing TAC tape decks. But, yeah. And, uh, you know, like there was a guy who had a, a, he was obsessed with, not obsessed with, it was great. He, at, the, at the time, this is like maybe MySpace era, um, he had a really good flash record, digital recorder of um, sound, like would have cost hundreds or even a thousand at that time. And people used to laugh at him, but he was doing a great archive. I don't know where it's gone. I can't remember his name, but he posted on uh, MySpace sounds of the live sets. But people would be like, oh, there's uh, such and such with his, with his uh, tape deck or, or tape recorder, they call mm -hmm. it, you know. Um, yeah, so there was a split there. Again, he was a fan rather than a, um, a player. Yeah, yeah. Um, in closing, would, is there anything you'd like to say about where your research is going from now? Yeah, I mean, I spoke a little bit about the stuff I was writing about the Dayton, Ohio um, massacre. Um, so that's one angle where I'm thinking about how metal is covered in contemporary media as a cause, mm. problematizing that. Um, so sort of returning a little bit to the problems of moral panics arguments, but then trying to sort of nuance it a bit by saying, well, the we don't want the opposite thing, which is I'm also collating articles as they come into my field about metal is good for you. I think I put one on Twitter, that, mm. um, which is uh, the, the discourse that metal is good for you, um, of course, implies that somehow it was ordinarily not. Right. Mm -hmm. 
and um, this, that this is newsworthy. It's remarkable. Metal is good for you, and that it. Um, has, and this is a, a cognitive science, neuroscience thing where they're tracking people's uh, brain waves to say oh, it makes people feel good rather than send them into uh, you know shooting people. So I'm looking <laughs> at. That. But also I am interested in, I haven't written up the whole material from the field work I did on um, at Nagoya. So um, I will be, so that's a return to the Japanese stuff, thinking of how the Nagoya scene operated in this kind of satellite way where they had a kind of, um, it was a way they built they faced a lot of discrimination um, being Japanese ethnicity, but not fitting in in terms of uh, culturally, but also their language being um, first language being Portuguese um, and how they um, have built sort of communities there um, around metal, which produced a way of belonging with inside the Japanese nation that's kind of at odds with it as well. Um, and and also I did that field work, which again, I haven't written up, I did a little bit of work in their workplaces, which were in uh, uh, mostly car manufacturing. Uh, so actually trying to do a little bit of, I was, it, it was observation um, in their everyday life, more observation of their everyday lives and the metal scene. So that's yet to be uh, written up. Um, in full I've only written one thing from that but it's from a while ago so I'd like to go back to Nagoya and do more work there um hmm. yeah so that's my metal angles yeah <laughs> awesome thanks very much thanks Have a lovely day. take care thank you for listening to Lingua Italica we hope you enjoyed it and we hope you stay tuned for our next episode before we leave, we just wanted to acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay respects to their elders, past, present and emerging.